it feels like a lot of the recent headlines are what ridiculous thing is this billionaire doing? And it's incredibly disheartening as a working class individual to sit here and watch billionaires basically play in a sandbox of money while people are starving. They don't have houses. Medical care is unaffordable. I don't think that Elon Musk could, you know, single-handedly solve any of those problems, but it just feels incredibly disheartening to watch them throw around money that could make such a difference for marginalized groups of people. For most of us, $44 billion is an amount of money we can't even fathom, let alone access to buy one of the largest social media companies in the world. But Tesla founder Elon Musk is poised to do just that. And some of you feel put off just hearing the numbers. If the deal between Musk and Twitter pans out, it could be one of the largest deals of its kind in American history. But much of the roughly $44 billion Musk needs to buy Twitter isn't hanging out in his bank account. So how does someone, even a billionaire, borrow that much money? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. To join future conversations, have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. Stress shows up in all kinds of ways. In a world that's telling you to do more, sleep less, and grind all the time, Here's your reminder to take care of yourself, do less, and maybe try some therapy. BetterHelp is committed to helping you in times of stress with customized online therapy. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com 1A and see if it helps life feel a little bit easier. Joining us to break down these numbers is John Hyatt. He covers wealth and billionaires for Forbes. John, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on, Jen. So Elon Musk is the richest person in the world. It can be tempting to think of him paying for Twitter, just, you know, taking out a debit card and, and swiping $44 billion from his bank account. But that isn't how it works. How exactly is he planning to pay for the company? So Musk, with a group of banks, they've put together a $46.5 billion financing package. So it's a little more than the $44 billion to cover some costs around the debt. So when you look at this financing package, you kind of want to break it up into three different components. The first part is $13 billion in bank loans. So this is debt that Twitter, the corporate entity, is taking on to help finance the bid. It's similar to how private equity firms often conduct a leveraged buyout. So there's that $13 billion in bank loans. Then you have a second $12.5 billion margin loan. So this is money that Musk is personally taking on uh, to help finance uh, his Twitter bid, and it's being backed backed by his own Tesla stock. About $62.5 billion worth of Musk's stake in Tesla is collateral for that loan. Uh, and then the remaining $21 billion is equity financing. So this is money that Musk himself uh, is putting in to buy Twitter equity. And potentially some private equity partners are going to go in with him on this deal. We don't know yet who that will be. There have been some reports of a software buyout firm, Tama Bravo, getting in on the deal, but uh, we're in wait-and-see mode right now. I want to focus in on those two buckets of loans that are at play, that $13 billion in loans that have been secured against Twitter, the company. What kinds of promises were involved in securing those loans? Well, you know, 
when it comes to somebody like Musk, who is, as you pointed out, you know, the world's richest man, a billion, uh, a fortune of over two hundred billion dollars, um, you know, the, the the promises only have to go so far in the sense that you know this they're backed up by uh, a lot of collateral in the form of, of, of Tesla stock. I mean, as far as these loans go, I mean, the banks are the ones on the hook here, right? Um, they're the ones that are putting up the capital. Uh, I mean, the $13 billion is being broken down between $7 billion from uh, money from the banks and another $6 billion in junk bonds, which they'll sell to investors. So, but, uh, but John, I have to ask, $13 billion is seven times more than Twitter's 2022 projected earnings. So why would a bank think this is a good deal? I think part of it has to do with Twitter occupies a pretty outsized role in a public discourse and a public imagination. So, uh, you know, I think there's, there's a lot of hope that this is a business that can turn around. Uh, you know, Twitter as a business has struggled compared to its peers like Snapchat and Facebook, which have shown uh, years of growth. So I think, you know, this is kind of a distressed asset, at least as far as tech valuations go. Uh, I think there's, you know, b- banks are optimistic that uh, an asset like Twitter can be turned into a money-making machine. We're talking to reporter John Hyatt. He covers wealth and billionaires for Forbes magazine. Now, you also mentioned this $2.5 billion margin loan that's tied to Musk's Tesla stock. First off, what's a margin loan? Yeah, yeah. So it's a $12.5 billion margin loan. um, And it's so a margin loan is simply a loan in which the borrower is borrowing against the value of their stock. So um, in Musk's case, uh, his Tesla stock is the margin or collateral against which he's borrowing cash to help finance his uh, buyout of Twitter. It's kind of like taking on a mortgage in which, you know, the house itself is the collateral. If you can't pay off your mortgage, you know, the bank will come seize the house. In Musk's case, if he can't pay off, uh, you know, the annual debt services on this margin loan, the, the banks would theoretically seize his Tesla stock. Okay, you say theoretically there, and I'm wondering how much work <laughs> that word is doing in this scenario. Right. I mean, so in, in the case of margin loans, right, like you, if you're the borrower and, you know, the, the value of, twi- let's say the value of Tesla, you know, drops quite a bit, uh, that will affect uh, the amount of collateral that the banks demand of Musk. So Musk could just put more of his Tesla stock up as collateral to help make up for that loss in value. Uh, And, you know, Tesla is one of the 10 largest U.S. corporations by market value. It has been on an absolute tear the last few years, especially. It's been one of the best performing stocks. So, you know, Musk has this kind of war chest that he's sitting on. So if Tesla stock goes down, you know, 20%, it's probably not too much of an issue for Musk since he can put up more shares or, uh, you know, find other ways to finance his way out of it. But Musk has also sold off some of his Tesla shares recently. Talk about why that's actually a big deal as opposed to, say, pledging shares. Absolutely. So Musk has historically been averse to selling his uh, Tesla shares. Uh, We saw late last year, he, on Twitter, of course, uh, posted a poll asking his followers whether or not he should sell some of his Tesla stock for the first time in in a while, and they voted yes, he should. This was in response to uh, some criticism he was facing uh, for not paying capital gains taxes uh, on stock sales. Uh, And you're right, just last week, he sold about $8 billion worth of stock. 
Uh, a lot of observers believe that this is going to go towards the $21 billion in equity financing as part of the package. Musk is going to need to put up some cash to make this deal happen. Uh, and it seems like this $8 billion or so is going to go towards that end. Last week, uh, Musk did say in the securities filings uh, that he's not going to sell any more Twitter or sell any more of his Tesla stock soon. Uh, so it appears he's going to rely on other partners. Um, but to get to your point about, uh, you know, difference between selling and pledging, uh, you know, this is an important distinction because on the one hand, you know, Musk is pledging around $62.5 billion worth of his shares uh, to make this deal go through. So, you know, he could sell those shares and uh, pay more money uh, out of his own pocket to buy Twitter's equity, uh, but he'd rather retain control of those shares uh, as a way to get debt. Uh, and this allows him to uh, keep his sizable stake in Tesla. Uh, it prevents him from, you know, losing power within that company. Uh, and, you know, as I mentioned, Tesla's stock has been on a tear the last few years. So he's probably optimistic it's still got room to grow and he doesn't want to miss out on those gains. But Tesla stock has fallen by about a fifth since Musk first announced his plans to buy Twitter. And that's led some to speculate he may back out of the deal altogether. What are some reasons he might get cold feet? One reason uh, could be precisely that. Uh, if Tesla's stock continues its recent run of poor performance, uh, I mean, this could affect how much of it he needs to post as collateral for the margin loan. Uh, and, you know, separately from, you know, the $62.5 billion in Tesla's stock that he's putting up as collateral, he's already pledged $88.3 million worth of his Tesla stake for other loans, which he's used to finance SpaceX and the Boring Company and any other things that Musk is spending his money on. We don't have insight on how much loans he has taken it out against those pledged shares, but it just speaks to the fact that this is a highly leveraged CEO, which is, you know, very atypical uh, in corporate America. So, uh, you know, as you point out, if Tesla's stock uh, goes down quite a bit, you know, this could impact his ability to access that capital. Uh, I mean, there's also the possibility that Elon Musk gets bored uh, and wants to walk away from Twitter uh, as he becomes more uh, familiarized with, you know, Twitter's struggle uh, to generate profit. I mean, maybe he starts to think, well, this deal isn't worth it. I want to walk away, in which case he would have to pay a $1 billion termination fee, which is a lot of money. But when you're the world's richest man, it's not that much. Well, Jody writes this, this isn't real money, right? Is this just theoretical money? John, what do you think? Um, in what sense, I guess, like the, the, the loans he's taking mm -hmm. on? or I, That's how I'm reading it. Yeah. So, I mean, the deal still has to go through, right? So Twit Musk does not own Twitter yet. Uh, the bank still have to, you know, raise all the capital for the loans. Uh, Musk still needs to actually put up money to go through with the tender offer. So at this point, it is theoretical, but uh, it, it does seem like it's uh, progressing as it should at this stage. SEC disclosures have been made. Uh, financing has been lined up. So there's a Better than 50% chance, I would say, that this deal goes through. That's John Hyatt. He covers wealth and billionaires for Forbes magazine. John, thanks for speaking with us. 
Thank you so much, Jen. Let's turn to two new voices in the conversation. Jesse Isinger is a senior editor and reporter for ProPublica. He focuses on markets, finance, and the very wealthy. He's also the author of a book whose title I cannot say without being fined by the FCC, so I'll just call it The Chicken Blank Club, Why the Justice Department Fails to Prosecute Executives. Jesse, welcome to 1A. Hi, thanks for having me. Also with us is Edward McCaffrey. He's a professor of law, economics, and political science at the University of Southern California. He specializes in tax law. Edward, it's great to have you. Great to be here. A Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren has slammed the Musk takeover, using it as an opportunity to raise a policy she's been pushing for years. We need a wealth tax in America. And let's talk about how Elon's purchase here was subsidized by tens of millions of people who've paid their taxes every year. And the second part is we need rules of the road for big tech. But ultimately, what all this boils down to is power. Now, Jesse, we'll get deeper into the rules around the wealthy and the tax code in a moment. But first, remind us, how have efforts to implement a wealth tax gone on Capitol Hill? Not well. Um, So Warren and Bernie Sanders campaigned on uh, wealth tax in 2020. Um, and we don't have President Warren or President Sanders. Um, those weren't winning proposals even within the Democratic coalition. Uh, since then, there have been more refined proposals that aren't about a wealth tax per se. A wealth tax is you add everything up that a super wealthy person has and then you tax uh, – you assess that total and tax that. Um, There's a different way to do it, and the Biden administration just proposed a way to look at how much wealth grows by in a given year for a super rich person and tax that as if it were income. And that also has not gone anywhere, but uh, it is quite striking that a president has proposed it. It's the first time in history that an American president has proposed it. It's a a landmark occurrence um, and is kind of working through Congress. It probably won't pass, but it's still nevertheless pretty important. Now, Warren has claimed that Elon Musk is able to buy Twitter in part because of everyday taxpayers paying their dues. Edward, what's the connection there? What what is she talking about? Well, I think there, Jen, she's talking about just the general fact that Elon Musk is paying no tax, as Jesse's reporting has shown, and other people are paying taxes. So if there's any cost or government entity supervising, we have to spend any money at all. Uh, Musk isn't paying any of it because he's paying no tax. And uh, the good news, I think, for your listeners who may be thinking of bailing on a complex talk about tax is the basic tax planning is very, very simple. And everybody who has assets, anybody who owns a house can do it. As Jesse knows, because I talked to him uh, in context with his reporting, it's three words, buy, borrow, die. That's what I call tax planning 101. You buy an asset that rises in value without producing cash, like Tesla stock, like Tesla stock or a house. You borrow, which is what we're just talking about Musk doing, and borrowing is not income. When you borrow, take out a home equity loan. That's not income. And then if you die with both assets and debt in place, the tax liability goes away. So buy, borrow, die. Anybody with wealth can do it. Elon Musk is doing it. He's doing it to extremes. He's doing it to pay zero taxes. 
Um, and he's gotten a little greedy and he's like Icarus flying too close to the sun. He's trying to borrow too much to have too much fun. His hobby is a $44 billion Twitter acquisition. It's not a $1 billion rocket ship to the moon, which is what Jeff Bezos does. Another billionaire who plays buy, borrow, die and pays zero, no, not, no taxes, no income taxes whatsoever. We also got this email from Emily who says, five years ago, my husband and I were building a house. My husband is an emergency physician, but is paid as an independent contractor. I'm a glass artist and own my own business, which is very successful. We submitted close to 100 documents to procure a construction loan from a lender that we have used for years without ever missing a mortgage payment. Applying for a loan almost became another full-time job. Jeff, Jesse, how much of a difference is there, you know, between borrowing money if you're an average person and an uber wealthy person like Elon Musk who's trying to buy a company. Yeah, I mean, this is true that it's uh, available to um, an average upper middle class person. Um, You made a very good point earlier. Um, There's an enormous percentage of Americans who have negative net worth. They uh, don't have any wealth at all, even uh, though, you know, roughly 60, 65 percent of Americans are homeowners, uh, if I remember correctly. But many of those people don't have positive net in net worth either. So, uh, so first of all, this is not available to any American. It's only available to the upper crust. And then it's expensive. Uh, and uh, a home equity loan is uh, less typically than a mortgage, but you're still paying um, a pretty high interest rate. The richer and richer you get, the lower and lower your interest rate is until when you're like Musk and you're pledging stock, it's virtually zero. It's uh, unnoticeable because the investment bank has the stock sitting in its uh, accounts and so it doesn't really have to worry about getting paid back. It can just uh, just sell it off um, when if if it needs to. Uh, so yes, this is available to um, the you know affluent Americans and then it's supercharged for the ultra wealthy. Um, and it comes, of course, as uh, we've been mentioning, um, and this is crucial with the added bonus that you don't pay any taxes on this uh, borrowing, which is there's an it's a, system here that doesn't have to be that way. You could actually tax borrowing or you could tax wealth growth, but we don't do it in American society. Well, here's a tweet we got from Brave Girl. As a single mom and social worker in Fairfax County, I can't even get a car loan without paying 22% interest. I cannot fathom the fact that Elon Musk bought Twitter. There are so many things that are so much more important than owning things just because you can. Well, he hasn't bought Twitter quite yet, but we're talking about how he'll get the money to do it if the deal goes through. Remember to join future conversations, download our 1A Fox Pop app, and leave us a voicemail. Now let's get back to our conversation on Elon Musk's plans to purchase Twitter and where he's getting the money to do it. Here's a message we got from Mary on our app 1A Vox Pop. Despite being a Tesla owner and a huge proponent of SpaceX and all they have accomplished, I really loathe the idea of Elon Musk owning Twitter. Oligarchs should not be in control of the spaces where those of us in the public sphere come together to discuss issues. 
In particular, someone with a juvenile understanding of what free speech means should not be in control of a free speech platform. Mary, thanks for that message. We also got this email from Diogo, who says, I grew up in Brazil watching some rich folks buy local radio and TV stations, but it wasn't for the profitability. They do that to control communication, to improve their own image, and to have leverage with some politicians during local elections. Jesse Elon Musk is also reportedly planning to put up $21 billion of his own cash to buy Twitter. How common is it for these big media companies and and big social networking platforms to be owned by one or a very few wealthy people? Uh, Well, the right person to ask that question is my wife, Sarah Ellison, who had a very good story in the Washington Post um, that I will borrow from. And uh, it's... It's changed. So in the past, we had things like uh, the Hearsts or Pulitzers. Oh, and they were pretty wealthy. Um, you didn't have to worry about them putting food on the table. But their money was concentrated in media um, and media businesses. It, now what we have is that media has become a plaything or a hobby for the billionaire class. So Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post and Musk is flirting with Twitter and uh, Lorreen Powell Jobs owns the Atlantic and the the list goes on. And uh, there's a difference there because if Musk is going to own Twitter, which is a, a kind of media platform, obviously, not literally a kind of producer of new information with reporting but they also have the it's a it's a kind of side hobby as i say when they have their fundamental core businesses that are uh regulated by the government they um have business abroad musk has enormous interests in china and that um is uh, incredibly important and uh brings to bear all sorts of free speech issues and foreign policy issues. Uh, and so it this kind of concentration of power and influence among the billionaire class when the media that they have is now a kind of side hobby to their crucial elements of their wealth-creating machines, and those machines um, interact with the United States government and governments abroad that completely colors the way we should think about uh, owning media properties. Well, here's a tweet we got from a song for today who says it's not just the tax code. The entirety of the financial and legal systems are set up to benefit the privileged. Rules for thee, but not for me. And another of you tweeted, my reading on the details of the Musk Twitter buyout is that his debt service fees, principal and interest on his margin loans, are more favorable than many people's mortgages. How is this acceptable? I mean, Edward, what do you have to say to these folks who say, look, these rules are not made for us? Uh, They're right. And and that really circles back to the very important point that you had with Senator Warren. Do we have to change the tax code? Because you had a caller before who said Musk can borrow 40 billion. I can borrow 100,000. What's the difference? And the difference is 40 billion is a lot more than 100,000. So the rich get richer, the margin loans, the interest on the loans that that people like Musk have been paying has been below 1% for decades. Musk borrows against Tesla at the lowest possible rate for what would not be a gift. So the rich get richer, the rich have, and it's worked, the rich have gotten very, very rich. 
And now we have the oligarch problem. Now we have the problem that we're not taking out $100,000 home equity loans to put the kids through school or to fix the house up a little bit. We're taking out $44 billion worth of loans to buy Twitter and be the sole owner of a very crucial social media platform. We're taking out billions of dollars of loans to fly our personal rocket ships to the moon. So things have gotten out of whack where the average American is paying 30%, 33% in taxes, the billionaires are paying nothing, and they're able to distort our social media space, they're able to take over the world. We, we don't like Russia because we think Russia is controlled by oligarchs. We're getting oligarchs who have no paying nothing to the federal government. And I think at some point we have to listen to the Senator Warrens of the world, the Joe Bidens of the world, and have everybody pay his or her fair share. And very briefly, Edward, is it enough to just make changes, for instance, to the tax system if we know that there's a large swath of Americans who cannot not just not generate wealth using, you know, these these rules that are in place now, but we, we got to talk about the vast income inequality that exists in the country as well. It's a journey of many, many steps. We, we've delayed for millennia the, the, the project of meaningfully taking from the rich to help out the poor. So tax isn't everything, but tax is a big thing. Uh, uh, Elon Musk at some point has had a net worth of $250 billion dollars. Uh, average Americans would have spent would have paid like 80, 100 billion dollars in taxes to get there. So the magnitude, if we're going to start helping the not rich, we should start taxing the rich and use that money to help the not rich. I think we should have a progressive spending tax where we clamp down on luxurious spending, high end spending, and we get the billionaire class working for us all by investing and saving, but not, you know, these baubles and beads that have now gotten up to it. That's a $44 billion toy. And I think we can ask whether at this point in civilization, any one person deserves a $44 billion toy. That just seems a bit much. And uh, we've got to start somewhere, Jen. That's Edward McCaffrey. He's a professor of law, economics, and political science at the University of Southern California. Also with us today, Jesse Isinger, a senior editor and reporter for ProPublica. He's also the author of a book called The Chicken Blank Club. You can fill in the blank why the Justice Department fails to prosecute executives. Jesse, Edward, thanks for speaking with us. Now, that last question about how we extend opportunities to build a company, you know, borrow money, build wealth, is central to the work of our next guest. Lauren Mylan is the founder and CEO of LMB Group and CEO of Digital Undivided. That's an organization that supports businesses created by women of color. And just as at the table, here are some numbers. The national average or seed round funding for a startup is $2.5 million. The average for a Latina founder is just $200,000. And for Black female founders, that number is lower still, $125,000. Lauren is part of the push to level the playing field. Lauren, welcome to the program. It's great to have you. Thank you so much. It's amazing to be here with you. We've been talking about Elon Musk's ability to borrow billions of dollars to buy Twitter. According to a recent report conducted by your company, you found that Black and Latina women receive less than 0.5% of total venture capital funding. What are the barriers to accessing capital that women in co- women of color in particular face? 
You know, women of color, Black and Latina women in particular, face um, often insurmountable hurdles. Um, there is an unlevel playing field and a lack of parity and expectation. The goalpost for women of color is constantly changing. Um, and the goalposts and the expectations are, are always surpassing that of non-minority counterparts. And our, our greatest push right now is specifically around increasing, specifically doubling the valuations of at least 25% of the companies founded and led by women of color by the end of next year um, because of big acquisitions and uh, tech news and valuations like exactly what we are seeing today that continues to exacerbate the problem and widen the spread of both access to capital, um, but also access to reasonable valuations that create the kind of wealth for a woman of color to be able to leverage in the way that, that you and, and Ed were just speaking about. And just to be clear, when you talk about doubling the valuations of companies owned by Black uh, women and Latinas, what you're talking about is is giving a fair assessment of what that company is worth and, and that it should be higher than what it may be um, considered worth con- considered to be worth at, at this moment. And if you can raise that value, then that gives them more opportunity to leverage that value to get more loans, to get more capital, to get more credit. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Um, and this mega deal is not the reality for most entrepreneurs and small business owners, especially for diverse founders and entrepreneurs. The rules and the system have often worked against us. And taking a look at, at tax and the tax implications is an important consideration in this Elon Musk equation because it's not the only thing. There is a treasure chest of very valuable stock to leverage against, as you've just finished talking about, these are are opportunities that even if they were available to a woman of color, do we have enough stock, illiquid but valuable, to leverage against, to borrow against? Or are we forced to take higher interest rate loans against our houses? Um, But again, these opportunities don't exist to us, nor do the opportunities to leverage our existing position to have access to greater capital in record time, I might add. You know, it takes a woman of color many months often, and this is research that we are conducting now at Digital Undivided, on how long it takes a woman of color to raise her first round of capital. And we know that her first round of capital is less than 10% than the national seed round of of venture firms, what a startup is getting as a national average being that $2.5 million. Hmm. We're getting a fraction of that and it is taking us months. And we are now seeing a $44 billion deal rivaling KKR's largest venture venture acquisition, private, private equity acquisition before this happening in record time. So we have to look at the speed as well. So part of what I'm also hearing you say is that for women of color, the risks may be higher because if your company isn't valued um, the way it should be, you might have to put your house up. So you're not just risking the business, you're risking your, your home, you're risking having a roof over your head, your family's head, maybe a family member is, is doing that for you. Is that correct? That is correct. And what is also correct is that there is tremendous risk exposure in this transaction for Elon Musk, but it is calculated risk that he can afford to take. 
And even though we can also calculate risks for our, ourselves as well as, as women of color, these are not risks that we can afford to take. You're a founding partner of Gen Y Capital Partners, and that's an early stage venture capital fund. You're also the first Black woman to start such a fund. How important is financing in those early stages of a company? You know, I think that not only is financing important, very important in the early stages of a company, the structure, the construct uh, of the company and the types of funding that it is accepting the terms for that money. So often people are focused on capital and just a dollar amount. And that can apply to anything. That can apply to salary valuation for your business, money that you're raising. But what is always most important are the terms. So even if we look at what's happening here with Elon, you know, it's also just been said on this show, you know, how low the interest rates are. Those are markedly different terms. And if those if that capital was available to him to borrow against on his Twitter stock, but at rates closer to mortgage rates or anything else of anybody, this would not be happening in this moment. It wouldn't be possible at all. As someone who's working to change this dynamic, what have been your biggest challenges trying to grow and support startups by women of color? I think our biggest challenges are this, are teaching women of color the right terms that protect their interest, that set them up for success, that give them a strong foundation for growth. The terms are so important. We often talk about access to capital. We talk about how wide the spread is between both access to capital and knowledge about deal terms and deal structure. But I think this is a perfect use case now for saying how important these terms are. Because again, this money is inexpensive money to him that can be so incredibly expensive to someone else who does not have the luxury of having stock as collateral, right? So if we, again, we're talking about mortgage rates, would he be able to come with a $44 billion offer or would it be, would it be less? And would that lesser offer be accepted? I don't know because that's not the construct of what he knows is available to him and what he's able to put together as a deal. That's Lauren Milan. She's the CEO of Digital Undivided. It's a company that supports tech startups created by women of color. Lauren, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Today's producers were Paige Osborne and Haley Blassingame with help from Rupert Allman. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. This is 1A.